This is the 966 episode 46. Richard, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. 46, almost to 50, halfway to 100. We have had <laughs> one full episode for every U.S. president so far, so we are really making some uh, oh some nice progress. Thank how you. How many before we're syndicated? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we may already be syndicated now and just don't know, so um, can't answer that. Um, yeah, our you, guest, oh, please. No, no, sorry. Yeah, we'll be listening to you know the nine six six podcast in many years in the future on on some odd off channel. <laughs> um, they're going to be beaming it into space. So in about a thousand years, another planet <laughs> is going to listen to it and have no idea what we're talking about and, and, and be enlightened. <laughs> our guest today is Jack Fowler from the global management consulting firm YCP Solidians. Really great discussion. We talk a little bit about the Saudi Arabia construction sector. The firm recently released a white paper on the subject, which is awesome. We'll also be talking about a subject we touched on a little bit last week, Richard, the potential for normalization, however remote at this point, between Saudi Arabia and Israel, Saudi women and family businesses in the kingdom. And as always, we'll put a crown on this week's program with more top storylines from the week. Before we get started, please subscribe to this wherever you're getting your podcasts or on YouTube. Helps us out a lot. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? The word of the month is normalization, specifically the possibility of normalization relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. A spate of articles in Israeli and American press seems to have been triggered uh, by the ongoing negotiations between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel about the status of the Tehran and Sanofir Islands at the top of the Red Sea. Lucian, we dove into this topic in last week's Yellow segment and, and, and had a really good conversation. There's lots behind it. It's interesting. In addition, Israeli foreign, Israeli foreign minister has suggested Israel is nudging the U.S. to prioritize normalization with Saudi Arabia as it prepares for a potential Joe Biden visit to the kingdom later this month. In fact, just this Tuesday, Israeli National Security Advisor Dr. Ayel Hulada was at the White House for meetings uh, for the meeting of the U.S.-Israel Strategic Consultative Group. Uh, there are plenty of other data points uh, I could include is a recent report from an Israeli business publication that, quote, dozens of Israeli tech entrepreneurs and business people flew to Saudi Arabia for advanced talks on Saudi investments in Israeli companies and Israeli investment funds, unquote. Or the Jared Kushner's <clears throat> Affinity Investment Fund that currently has 500 million of Saudi PIF funds is cleared to invest in Israeli companies. Uh, so there's plenty of this uh, in the news. Uh, is this a case of where there is smoke, there is fire? Uh, yes and no. I happen to think normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia is inevitable, but it won't happen soon. Why? Uh, it will take a very long time and a lot of work to grind down the sticking points between Israel's aspirations and Saudi Arabia's needs. And what do I mean by this? Israel has long sought fully normalized relations with all states and places particular value on Arab states. It has a cold, it has cold treaties with Egypt and Jordan, and with the 2020 Abraham Accords, added normalization agreements with Bahrain, the UAE, Morocco, and Sudan. Saudi Arabia remains the crown jewel, though. This is not only because of its leading position within the Arab and Muslim worlds, its wealth, markets, and investment potential, but also because it has been a long time and staunch proponent of Palestinian rights. In fact, uh, as we know, uh, the standing offer from Arab states to Israel on the matter of Palestine is known as the Saudi Initiative. It was introduced as the Abdullah Plan in 
2002, uh, named after former Saudi King Abdullah. And it was reaffirmed in 2017 by the Arab League. The, the Saudi initiative offers Israel normalization of relations with the entire world, so a blanket offer. It's very short, by the way. It's like 10 sentences, so it's, it's pretty concise. The caveat for Israel is in return for this blanket normalization is full withdrawal by Israel from the occupied territories, including the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan Heights, and, and Lebanon, a, quote, just settlement, unquote, of the Palestinian refugee problem, of which, by the way, there are 5.6 million uh, registered Palestinian refugees. And uh, finally, the establishment of a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. Now, everything is negotiable, and, and there may be some change. But after 55 years of conflict and occupation, Israel is not going to move very far in any of these three issues. And why would they? With U.S. support, they have effectively fended off real concessions for decades while slowly picking away at Arab solidarity with agreements now in place with Arab League members, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, the UAE, Morocco, and Sudan. Saudi Arabia, however, is a bigger challenge. At the recent World, uh, World Economic Forum held just last week, Saudi Arabian Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan reiterated the kingdom's stance regarding normalization with Israel, stating, quote, I've addressed that several times in the past, and nothing has changed in how we view the subject. I think we have always seen normalization as the end result, but the end result of a path. Full normalization between us and Israel will bring immense benefits. We won't be able to reap those benefits unless we address the issue of Palestine, unquote. So Israel aspires to normalization with key Arab neighbors, preferably and we've seen this pattern repeatedly, preferably without giving up anything with regard to the Palestinians. Uh, what does Saudi Arabia need versus Israel's aspirations? As devoted it has been to the Palestinian issue, the kingdom has increasingly more pressing security issues and priority economic goals. The kingdom and Israel are aligned with regard to this assessment of Iran as the critical threat in the region. And for Saudi Arabia, there is a meaningful security benefit to normalization with Israel. Uh, with, the GDP, with a GDP similar to the UAE's and highly developed technology and industrial manufacturing sectors, Israel could be an extremely useful partner for Saudi Arabia as it diversifies its, its economy. For example, just this week, Israel signed a free trade agreement with the UAE, the first of its kind. The UAE predicts that the agreement will boost bilateral trade to more than 10 billion a year within five years. So for where Saudi Arabia is now and where it wants to go, normalization with Israel would bring benefits. The question remains, how willing is Israel to compromise on Palestinian issues to achieve normalization? And conversely, how flexible with regard to the Saudi initiative will the kingdom be in order to access Israeli defense tech capabilities, spark trade and investment, and help diversify its economy? Uh, in a fit of reason, Yaro Lapid, Israeli's foreign minister, commented on Monday that, quote, we believe that it is possible to have a normalization process with Saudi Arabia. We've already said that this is the next step after the Abraham Accords, but this won't happen the same way it did last time, which by, by which he means quickly. It could be that three foreign ministers after me, someone will be standing on this podium and will celebrate this, which is completely fine. This is how one runs a state, unquote. Uh, so that's my take on normalization, Lucian. Um, as I said, it's been in the news. 
I, I was prompted to sort of put some thoughts to it and, and we ran long, but uh, as I said, I think it's inevitable, but no time soon. Richard, there's no such thing as long. This is a podcast. <laughs> you can come in and out whenever you want. No, I thought, I think that's very good. And I think when we saw the headlines start to crop up last week, so about a little bit more than a week ago, we saw the word normalization, and then we didn't see a lot on the Israeli-Palestinian situation, only the islands transfer situation from Egypt to Saudi Arabia, which involves Israel and was mediated by the, by the United States. But we sort of saw that and said, wait a minute, this is actually a long way away from Israeli-Saudi normalization because the issue is really Israeli-Palestinian peace. And um, as you mentioned, the King Abdullah Peace Initiative is still out there, a different name, but almost same exact you know, yeah. counter offer to Israel, and it's just not going to be accepted by Israel. So it's really interesting because, you know, from recently Bill Clinton to George Mitchell, George Mitchell to Donald Trump promising a win on this um, peace between Israel and Palestine, which is actually really what we're talking about, has been impossible, impossible so far, full stop. Um, I guess with that said, um, you know, this and it's it's there's also a lot of local Saudi politics at play. Um, you know, you have sort of, I mean, I know that King Salman cares very deeply about the Palestinian cause. Saudi charity to Palestine is, um, enormous. They give a ton of money and supplies and, uh, everything to, uh, Palestine. So, um, yeah, it, that, that was I, 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 all that to say that was a really good rundown. And I think that people need to keep their expectations in check here when it comes to this, because it's, it seems like it's actually a long way off. Agreed. And, uh, you know, when for years, uh, many years, I've hosted and helped and coordinated many, many Saudi delegations to the U.S. And, and uh, in the 90s and uh, early aughts, uh, uh, very often they couldn't help but talk about Palestine because it, it, it's very close to their heart and it's very galling to many Arabs, you know, uh, the injustice of it and the uh, the uh, inconsistency, uh, inconsistency in terms of Americans' point of view on this and, and th their logic, you know, Arabs and, and people who support this don't understand the logic, you know, it's not, it's not fair. And when they come and, and on a Saudi delegation, you know, I would often say, look, can we avoid this issue because you want to talk about Saudi issues? Increasingly now, almost exclusively, if a, if a delegation comes here, they're, they're talking about Saudi issues because there's so many important Saudi issues. Like I said, the defense, uh, the Vision 2030, the economic diversification, the moving forward. And uh, although there's a, a heartfelt support and intellectual understanding of, of uh, that the Palestinian cause remains extremely important, I think they'd love to resolve it and move forward because they do have other priorities, but that's it, you know. On conversely, on the other side that we've talked about, Israel, you know, their habit, which is not a bad habit, is trying to get something for nothing, which is what they've tried to do all along with regard to the Palestinian issue. Richard, I sent you a, a meme uh, yesterday, the trade offer meme, which is going around the Internet these days. And the joke was essentially, what is it that Israel is really willing to offer in exchange for normalization with Saudi Arabia? And that's sort of what I think both of us are sort of looking at and saying, what can they offer? You know, rhetorical question, but what is on the table here? If that's, I mean, Saudi Arabia can't, is not really even admitting that they're having back, backroom talks with Israeli officials. Um, I mean, they're not even saying that they're actually talking. So it, I don't know, it seems, seems a little far off. Well, and also it's, it's an article and, uh, 
uh, by the Carnegie Endowment uh, sometime back, and it's talking about normalization. And, and th- uh, this is a direct quote from it. Um, quote, normalization is not simply a top-level exchange of officials. Rather, it's a public-to-public engagement. Decades after the Egyptian peace accords, people-to-people normalization does not exist, and relations remain quite cold on a cultural level. The same is true for the Jordanian peace accord signed in 1994. Um Saudi Arabia be very cognizant of that. You know, they can you can make a political deal, but you know, if your if your society and the general sentiment is is strongly negative, it's problematic. And I think that's going to be something they run into if they try and do this do a deal with Israel. It'll take a lot of take a long time at that public to public engagement level. I think it probably is going to be different in UAE, just because it's a much smaller state, a different proposition. Saudi Arabia has different considerations. Richard, my one big thing this week: a new report from the global audit, tax, and advisory services firm KPMG looks at the role of women in family businesses in Saudi Arabia. Really interesting report, Richard. As you know, there are many family businesses in the kingdom, but these firms are changing with the times in Saudi Arabia. With increasing participation rates of Saudi women in the workforce, the report shares insights gathered from interviewing women business leaders working in family businesses across Saudi Arabia and the women interviewed from top Saudi family companies, some named in the report like Al-Zamal Group, Al-Faris Group, and some not named. They openly discuss and share their challenges, opportunities, and successes while working with their family business. The report really follows four overarching things. Just want to touch on them quickly here. The first, the role of women in family businesses in which KPMG looks at the differences and challenges associated with women's varying roles within their families and businesses. KPMG also explores the gender differences that women face in relation to treatment and opportunities within the family business, as well as the role mentors, both male and female, play in advancing women within family businesses. Second theme, leadership styles, explores the traits women are associated with and perceived effect on their leadership capabilities. Third, and I think this is also especially interesting, sustainability of these businesses and succession. Uh, KPMG discusses how families are taking an objective merit-based approach to family businesses and their succession and how that empowers women. Um, and then finally, unique opportunities and mandatory legislation. KPMG examines different, different perspectives on quotas aimed at increasing the number of women in companies and leadership positions. The company says the overarching goal with this report is to, quote, understand more about the impact changing demographics in Saudi Arabia are having on women and family businesses and their influences on the success of their businesses and their families. Wanted to rotate the spotlight on this this week, Richard, and uh, mostly because I think you know, with you and I reading literally every single news item and almost every report that comes out on Saudi Arabia all the time, you and I both sort of know that when you have reports like this and they feature actual interviews and actual comments with real people on the ground in Saudi Arabia, real people in, uh, in this case, a position of business, um, it's really valuable. It's hard to get a gauge of public opinion and attitudes, reactions in Saudi Arabia versus other countries around the world. So when you have a report like this with real quotes, real viewpoints from Saudis um, with knowledge on the ground, you're just sort of getting a unique, uh, extra clear window into Saudi Arabia. And so I just want to use my one big thing this week to sort of highlight this report. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting subject as well. Um, not totally unique to Saudi Arabia and that family businesses operate around the world, but Saudi Arabia's business culture is changing from one, you know, 
with a lot of family businesses or maybe even dominated by family businesses to being different and more modern. But these family businesses are still not just around, but thriving. And it's because they are adapting to a changing Saudi Arabia. I thought it was an excellent report. I would strongly recommend it. And I think it was a good choice solution for you. One big thing. Thank you. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, for years and years, uh, the, there's an understanding within Saudi Arabia that significant assets were controlled by women in a household. And very often this was assets that were, were part of a family business or whatever, and they had opened their own shops or this sort of thing. And it was kind of a shadow. It's hard to put a number to it, but it was deemed to be considerable. This is entirely different what this report is talking about. And it, it threads in, um, it threads in uh, like so many things in Saudi Arabia, there's multiple threads going along in order to create a rope, you know, to pull yourself forward. And in this case, it's talking about there's a lot of these private enterprises, a lot of companies are, are moving to privatize, to, to uh, professionalize, to, you know, their second, third, fourth generation in terms of that sort of thing. But then you have women being introduced into the, into the mix with that different expectations, different skill sets, uh, uh, really impressive talent. And it just says a lot that, at, you know, in 2022, that KPMG did this report. And it speaks volumes about what's going on in Saudi Arabia. It's because this is real. Uh, these companies are adapting. These women are, in, uh, you know, in, in injecting themselves into the process. They're, they're, everyone's trying to find a balance. Change is afoot, and it's moving quickly, and it's just massive. Uh, so I think it's, and you capture a little bit when you, when with this with report, you know, you get a little insight of just how deeply and foundational things are changing in Saudi Arabia. This is interesting too because it's not just a a look at the at, at you know the business side of things or um, it's not just an economic looking glass. This was a very readable report because it's also looking mm -hmm. at Saudi society, um, and again, it's really heavy on direct quotes from Saudi uh, business leaders. Just wanted to highlight this one point, um, and this is a quote from the the piece. Uh, from the report, the importance of networking is emphasized in KPMG's 2019 women's leadership study with 82% of professional working women believing that access to and network networking with female leaders will help them advance in their careers. Further, a point that was brought up by multiple interviewees was the social norm in Saudi Arabia for women to not discuss business in social settings, even if the women present are business people. Quote, when men socialize, they talk, they always talk about work. But when women socialize, even among colleagues, we talk about non-business related top topics like it is a shame to talk about our business or discuss our work, said a family member, vice president. Like I said, they have some uh, named quoted people and some that are they did so anonymously. Just really interesting because I mean, it just was a, a very it is a very readable report because it's a really cool look at not just Saudi uh, businesses, but also society and how the two are starting to weave together here. Agreed. Very readable. Highly recommended. Mm -hmm. Our guest today is Jack Fowler from the global management consulting firm YCP Solidians. The firm recently released a white paper on partnering for success in Saudi Arabia construction, which highlights key drivers for Saudi Arabia's development. Jack joins us from London right before the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Jack, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on the 966 today. Uh, thank you both very much for having me. 
Thank you. Well, we appreciate you, by the way, you know, uh, not accepting your invitation to be sitting next to the queen at this Jubilee to join us today <laughs> on the 966. <laughs> I mean, I've got to take the biggest invite that comes my way any given time. <laughs> I've got to be with you guys. Uh, Jack, yes, thank you for joining us. You know, we this this report that that YCP Solidians did and, and it issued it in April, uh, just April 2022, so it was very recent. Uh, I really liked it. I thought it was laid out intelligently. It it uh, it took into account a lot of things we talk about, and I was wondering if if we could sort of sort of run through that report. Because uh, it talked about the larger uh, economic picture, it talked about the public investment fund. It talked about you know the, the changing uh, environment in terms of governance. Uh, again, for this contracting sector, which uh, I guess in 2021 was 120 plus billion uh, sector, uh, but uh, I know it's coming off of a, a, a downturn after COVID. But can you? You know, the first the first section of that report is five key drivers for KSA development. Can you run us through those? Sure, absolutely. Um, firstly, I think it's important to bring together uh, a lot of the different facets of, of information that's out there about Saudi, how to do business in Saudi. It's very interesting for international companies looking to navigate the space. It's a very dynamic space in terms of regulations, um, a lot of change, lots of proposed change. So just to pull everything together in, in, a, in a moment in time, I think was the purpose of this white paper. And that's what we aim to do for our clients. Um, you mentioned contracting being uh, a very interesting space. It is, it is, and, and why? Um, Saudi is in development mode. Um, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of impetus behind change, diversification of the economy. Um, and we identified five key drivers of development. The first one you touched on, and that is that KSA, from an economic standpoint, is in recovery and growth mode. Um, we talked about the, uh, an economic decline due to COVID-19. And we talk about the emergence from COVID-19, the need to rec recover that lost ground in economic growth, but then also fulfill growth ambitions that are already active in the market. Um, so we have Vision 2030, which is really the framework driving a lot of development in Saudi. And part of Vision 2030 is diversifying Saudi's economy and reducing the reliance on oil resources, essentially. Um, so that's the second key driver, really. Um, thirdly, is Vision 2030 and everything it represents. So there's lots of different programs within Vision, and they touch upon every different uh, facet of the Saudi economy and Saudi life. Changing Saudi to become a more accessible economy is one thing, but improving quality of life, ensuring that um, uh, labor resource and manpower want to be there, and becoming um, uh, a, an open market on the global stage is something that Saudi's really struggled with over the past 30 to 50 years. Um, opening the economy in Saudi 30 years ago we're talking about signing first mover deals. Uh, we're talking about keeping wealth uh, very much um, uh, isolated within certain family business groups. That needs to change. The economy needs to open up. And that's a huge part of Vision 2030. Um, the fourth point is one of the more important points that is missed by analysts. And that's because it's not really related to the economy. It's actually related to Saudi's urbanization problems and urban sprawl within key cities. 
Vision 2030, um, and let's go down a bit and focus specifically on uh, some of the economic diversification initiatives related to the urban world, right? We're talking about building new cities. We're talking about um, looking outside traditional city limits of, in places like Riyadh and Jeddah. And um, building an infrastructure that allows these places to become livable, it allows residents to move there, it allows businesses to resituate. Um, a lot of this is important due to the urban challenges within Saudi. It's just simply impossible to move in certain directions across Riyadh in any, in any sensible period of time, for example. So there's a lot of infrastructure work underway to build a second tier of cities within Saudi because nobody really talks past Jeddah Riyadh Damam. But there's a lot more past Jeddah Riyadh Damam. There's a lot of space in Saudi. There's a lot of potential for tourism developments on the Red Sea coast, for example, and we're seeing those projects come to fruition. Um, the final point is about KSA becoming a hub for foreign investment. Um, now, we see a lot of regulatory change. Um, we see the uh, need for the Saudi economy to diversify and it needs expertise in order to do that. So we need foreign companies to come to Saudi and take hold of some of these projects. Um, building racetracks is, is not something every construction company in the world can do, right? So we need specialists to come and do it. Uh, so the idea that Saudi um, can attract investment is one angle to this. But the second and potentially more important angle, actually, is the role of Saudi as an international investor. And we see a lot of marquee investments over the past five to 10 years uh, from uh, organizations and institutions, the Public Investment Fund being one of them, looking to see where these investments can be. Can Saudi become a hub of capital? Can Saudi attract financing from other capital partners globally? Um, so. Across these five themes, there's a lot to, to stratify, a lot to dig into, um, but they can be applied to most uh, questions, most strategic questions across most sectors for Saudi. And that's how we, we started this, this uh, white paper off because that's what we're advising our clients in recent months. Uh, and, and I think that was one of the things that uh, really, really attracted me to it was this, this sort of larger picture uh, assessment. And then you moved in and you you uh, talked a bit about the public investment fund, which, uh, as I've said before, uh, when I spoke with you and Damien previously, you know, uh, I'm, I'm asking anybody tell me what the PIF is, and what sort of animal it is that, you know, it, I don't, I'm not, I'm not seeing any comparable vehicle anywhere else, but that's my lack of understanding perhaps, but it plays a key role in the contracting sector and the construction sector. And so can you talk a little bit about the PIF? Right, um, the PIF is, is quite a unique beast. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people have lots of different answers to what the PIF is. Um, but ultimately at its core, we're starting with a sovereign wealth fund, right? But this is a different type of sovereign wealth fund that has a huge level of influence over regulation huge level of influence as project owner and a huge level of influence as, um, as a source of capital, as an investor in local businesses and uh, overseas businesses. So I think we've got to look at the core aims of the PIF to understand why it's different. It's not just another sovereign wealth fund. Um, firstly, it wants to grow its assets. So it wants to grow its investments. Now, the PIF is taking a two-prong approach to this. Firstly, it's looking 
domestically to see what can the PIF invest in uh, on a project basis. So we see the scaling up of mega projects within Saudi. The PIF is the main vehicle and shareholder behind each of, oh, I said not every single one, but most of the mega projects in Saudi. So the PIF is there as a key investment partner with other construction companies, for example, of developers. Um, the PIF also astutely understands Saudi's needs and it's investing on a needs basis. Now, let me dig into the contracting sector to give you an example. All construction works are underpinned by several key commodities, like steel, cement, for example. The PIF understands that. So the PIF is also directing its investments in that direction to make sure that, for example, it controls cement within the market. It's also the project owner. It's then awarding contracts to various contractors. The PIF is also investing directly into contractors. The PIF, there's, there's several contractors in Saudi that have PIF as a shareholder. So understanding the PIF's role uh, is to understand what Saudi needs and PIF is investing in that full ecosystem. In addition to its headline investments in global businesses and uh, unicorns, startups in the US and various places across the world. So the PIF is not just a sovereign wealth fund that's deploying capital as an investor. It uniquely, underst uh, sorry, it understands Saudi's unique needs and is acting on it. So therefore it's the vehicle behind economic change in Saudi. Um, in terms of its size, it is a top 10 sovereign wealth fund globally. So I mean, if we go back to the, to, to calling it just a sovereign wealth fund, but its vision and what it's been doing since it was it was uh, revitalized in 2015 um, uh, is is incomparable. There's there's no other sovereign wealth fund. There's no other there's no other body that has uh, that that vision that the PIF is showing, um, and then ultimately has the capital to back it up. A uh, lot of expertise within the PIF. There's a lot of expertise within uh, PIF invested companies and the mega projects. Um, so there's no short answer to what the PIF is. But um, understanding its needs and, and investing to ensure that those needs are met is one thing. But then ensuring the sustainability of those investments is another thing. And ensuring the sustainability is not just about prolonged economic performance. It's about ensuring it remains Saudi uh, or ensuring that the investments within Saudi remain Saudi. Um, and there we see uh, a big difference as well. So uh, one example of that is within niche technical areas. Uh, Saudi is, is very reliant on, uh, on niche technical expertise when it comes to railways, when it comes to port building, uh, when it comes to desalination, when it comes to uh, lots of different things, defense being a key one, right? Um, so making sure that that knowledge is localized, making sure that knowledge becomes um, uh, proprietary within Saudi organizations is another role of the PIF. So ensuring that Saudi has a tool it, it needs to develop, but then ensuring that those tools become Saudi and remain Saudi is also another key, key thrust of the PIF. So a long-winded answer as to what the PIF is, and I'm sure there's still some gray areas and areas missed, but but more or less, that, that is what uh, the PIF is about and what the PIF is trying to do. Actually, I think that may be the best primer I've heard on the PIF. That was that was superb. And it really spoke to something I think Lucian and I have seen as we look at this. 
is it seems to be a comprehensive approach as everyone, you know, especially the Western media, but everyone sort of focuses on, as you, as you said, the top line, the neoms, the uh, Red Sea gateways, uh, you know, these, these marquee top of the fold, you know, big projects. Uh, but you do see the PIF involving itself in all these sectors as you, and the term you used was underpinning um, and, and paying uh, great attention to the, 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 you know, mechanics of actually achieving the larger picture and, and what's involved. Uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting is, is our, you know, there's already a PIF, you know, takes up a big space. It has enormous gravity. Um, how does it interact with the, the, uh, the construction firms, contracting firms, Saudi on the ground already? And also, if you're a, an international uh, firm wanting to get into the and, and a part of this, how do they how do they navigate and work with and and exploit as well as avoid and sometimes PIF? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and actually, there's there's quite a few things to discuss within that. Um, so, firstly, PIF is a project owner is where most contractors would come into touch point with the PIF. Um, and what does that look like, right? So within the mega projects, for example, the PIF uh, is keenly aware that it needs international contracting expertise, um, certainly for the more niche technical exercises uh, that, that, that would be built into that project. Um, and as such, it knows what the pitfalls of international businesses doing uh, uh, business, contracting business with Saudi, it knows some of the issues that they may face. Um, perceived lack of transparency within Saudi, for example, um, perceptions around anti-slavery, perceptions around uh, some of the darker areas of winning contracts. And it's doing everything it can to change those perceptions. So it's very, very transparent for a, a, an international contractor to get into PIF contracts. Um, most of the PIF projects are using SAP Ariba systems, for example. So very transparent tendering processes, um, uh, very transparent procurement offices and procurement offices. Uh, and uh, in doing so, it's creating a space where contractors can freely interact with the PIF. Um, in terms of avoiding the PIF, uh, I think that's getting increasingly difficult to do on large volume work um, and, uh, sorry, in terms of large value work. And a lot of the volume of work as well is, is now situated within projects that have some, some level of PIF influence. So um, the only way to avoid direct PIF influence would be to subcontract within Saudi contractors that have won contracts with PIF. Um, but even in doing so, uh, the contractor's obligation is to report its subcontractors to the PIF. And as part of the procurement and tendering process, it actually needs to tell the PIF which subcontractors it could deploy for, for different types of projects, for example. So I don't think there's um, a clear-cut way to avoid the PIF on marquee projects or large-value projects. Um, now, there are many exceptions to that rule. There's lots of projects in Saudi that have absolutely nothing to do with the PIF, right? Um, so there's a lot of new airport uh, developments, for example. There's a lot of um, other projects that uh, uh, potentially fall, fall under uh, some level of government remit that, that are not PIF projects, ports, airports, um, uh, major infrastructure, highways. There's a, there's a lot going on, right? Um, and 
from that perspective, it's an entirely different beast in terms of how to win these contracts, um, how to tender within those spaces. So there's a lot of work in Saudi you can avoid the PIF within. But the lower down you go in terms of level of government involvement, the more difficult your chances as a foreign contractor are to actually win any of the work. And because then you delve into the world of local relationships and who knows who. And this isn't anything untoward or dark, it's just market reality. And we have to help a lot of our clients navigate that market reality. Um, let's take the road space as an example. If you want to win work um, uh, at a local municipal level and, and below, you better be sure you have a strong track record within that municipality. A contractor coming from China won't. They won't. Um, but when it comes to a major infrastructure project that you need a level of niche, uh, technical expertise, uh, a specific type of bridge with a specific engineering technology, the local road contractors won't have that expertise. The Chinese guys will. So therefore, it's a case of um, understanding what you can offer any particular tender or contract, um, and then is it worthwhile from a, from a bid perspective and in monetary terms. Um, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but uh, no, certainly no, some uh, topics come up. Yes, I mean, well, actually, uh, you know, that's what the nice thing about being around expertise, you answered much more than my question, because my question, you know, I'm not informed enough to actually get to all the things you got to, which was outstanding. I think it's really interesting what you're saying, in essence, and is this? And I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm assuming, which may not be appropriate, that it's across the board with PIF policy. But it's, it sounds like PIF is is demanding best practices uh, in all its, uh, you know, uh, accounting and its bids and and tenders, and that uh, your expectation or this is going to this will drive the market. Everybody has to come up to these best practices. I think that's a great observation. PERF is certainly driving best practice. Um, and that's not just to do with the fact it's hiring in great talent, uh, often foreign talent in managerial positions. It's not really to do with that. Um, it's actually to do with PIF's vision itself. Uh, it knows it needs that to meet the needs of experts and expertise and to become a market that exudes best practice. Um, it has to start somewhere. And in uh, 2019, so... 2019 is basically last year, right? Because 2020, <laughs> 2021. So we'll just, so very, very, we'll just, we'll just you know, I, I think that's fair. They will just take 2020 yeah. and most of 2021 really and just put it aside. <laughs> right. right. So, so in 2019, uh, there was a new uh, government tender and procurement law. And this is not just PIF specific, right? This is best practice in tendering, filtering down to all areas of the market. Um, and it replaced 2006 law. So that's how outdated the previous tender and procurement law um, was. Um, so that forces best practice to trickle down into the market because it's not just about if you want to be best practice and you're a, a publicly traded company in the US, you can only do business with the PIF. It's not about that. It's about saying that this market is more transparent, this market uh, can can accept your business in a way that suits your shareholders as well as in a way that that, that betters our project and betters our society and economy. It's, it's everybody has to win for anyone to win, right? It cannot just be about um, uh, uh, a Saudi government agency winning. So this um, GTPL from 2019 really forces best practice within the market. Now this applies to all government contracts at all levels. So even the PIF projects have to be compliant with it. 
and local municipalities have to be compliant with it. Um, so it's in the interest of opening the market. It's in the interest of promoting fairness and transparency. Now, the dark horse in the room is purely private to private work, right? That's an entirely different beast altogether. And that's based on private relationships. Um, there are big private companies or uh, companies even on, on the verge of public trading or, or whatever it could be, but you talk about the, the SABIX of the world. Um, there is always going to be uh, different levels uh, of procurement, which invokes different levels of relationships. And there's a very different dynamic in the private to private space. But generally speaking, all government contracts are, are held together now by this 2019 GTPR. Um, and there's more change. And that's one of the things that's exciting about Saudi, but it's one of the things that's hard to navigate, the level of regulatory change. So there's two key changes that, that we see coming in that aren't going to shake up what we already have, but they're going to layer on top of it. They're going to complement, and it's going to make sure that actually the market becomes even more of a robust entity, um, even more fair, even more transparent. Um, the first is the 2024 HQ law. Um, or the HQ program, as it's, it's been recently rebranded. Re uh, and this is about ensuring a, a level of local buy-in if you want to win government uh, contracts, want to win government tenders. At the moment, you can be situated in the UAE and bid into the country. Um, what Saudi is trying to force through, and January 2024 is the earmarked date, is local head, well, your regional headquarters of the Middle East must be Saudi-based if you want to win these government contracts. Um, and again, it's showing a, a good level of understanding of, of Saudi needs and a good level of understanding on how international businesses operate uh, in terms of they want the opportunity. Saudi offers that opportunity. It's offering the economic growth. It's offering uh, masses of potential to these private companies. But at the same time, we need local knowledge in Saudi. We want local jobs. We want um, uh, the local economy to prosper around these big businesses. You've got $50 billion businesses setting up regional HQs in the UAE and winning most of their work in Saudi. This, this happens a lot. The defense space, I mean, we don't deal too much with the defense space, but that's one key example, right? Um, so the idea is if you want to win the contracts, you've got to come to Saudi. You have to invest here. And the HQ law is one way of making sure that happens from a public procurement standpoint. Um, now, also on the table as of eight to 10 weeks ago is the, the touted new investment law. Now, this doesn't directly uh, focus on the public space because the HQ law kind of takes care of that. So does a 2019 GDPR. What the investment law is supposed to be focusing on is related to direct investments. So if you are an international company and you are seeking opportunity in Saudi and you are already going to invest here, um, even if it's to secure private business, you will now be treated the same as Saudi companies. There's no more preference for Saudi companies. Now, again, uh, we have that checklist of everything the Saudis seem to be doing right. One of them is understanding how foreign companies operate and understanding what the carrot is versus what the stick is and where the balance is, because I think they've got the balance. But the other one is understanding exactly what the local needs are. And um, a company securing uh, 
an, an investment in Saudi meets those local needs because they're looking to directly invest in some type of project, some type of asset, some type of infrastructure. Aside from the GTPL, the, the other regulatory development, and bear in mind it's a fast-moving market, lots of development, uh, very dynamic, and it's sometimes difficult to keep your finger on the button, um, is the proposed new investment law. Now, um, how long these things take to, to, to really get to final draft and, and, and come into force is a different question altogether. But on the table at the moment, new investment law proposing to uh, treat foreign investors the same as local investors. Now, this is within the private investment space. So we're talking about direct investments here. So direct investments into assets, direct investments into um, uh, even, even the M&A space in Saudi. And... Um, it just demonstrates again uh, the Saudi government's uh, two-pronged agenda to not only serve Saudi's needs in the best way possible, but also to meet uh, foreign investors' concerns and to really remove some of the clouds away from the market. So one thing the investment law does very well is remove the concern that um, Saudi companies would be treated with, with, with a higher level of favor than international investors, um, because that's always long been the concern. In the tendering space, in the contracting space, that's, that's a clear concern, right? How can we win against Saudi companies? Well, there's a lot more transparency there. Now, in terms of the direct investment space, and in terms of the race to secure assets, the race to secure land, whatever, whatever the transaction could be, foreign investors will be, or designed to be, reassured by this new law coming in. So um, I, I think in the regulatory space, it's, it's great the way that the Saudis have dealt with things. It's meeting local needs whilst keeping at bay foreign investors' concerns, the traditional concerns that have been there for the past 30 years. So um, we, we, we do see a lot of regulatory development that's positive um, and have yet to see uh, anything negative. Now, how these things are implemented and what they look like in reality, the HQ Law 2024 we're two and a half years away from understanding what that looks like in reality. Uh, the new investment law, we're at least a year away from seeing what that looks like in its final draft form. So I think there's some time to work these things out, um, but there's a lot of, of, of road in front of us in terms of Saudi development. So I think, I think there's no limit to, uh, to, to how impactful these can be in the future. Um, before uh, I get to, I want a specific question about the HQ uh program, as you said it, uh, in the in in the report, the YCP Solidians report that we talked about partnering for success in Saudi Arabia construction, and we're not going to ask uh, Jack to go through it, but they, they, they have a very nice uh, rundown of the key points within the 2019 government tender and procurement law. So it's mm. worth a read in that regard. Mm. Um, but specific to the HQ, so immediately when this was announced, uh, I think some, something like 44 uh, major national corporations uh, said, you know, I, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. What's the practical effect, in your opinion, of, of, of this law in terms of corporate decisions? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. And, and uh, the fact that we're not going to see the on-the-ground reality in 20, until 2024 is, uh, is one of the reasons, or one of the caveats I'll, I'll give to the answer. Um, but certainly what companies and, and the major organizations will be looking to do is protect the investments they already have in countries such as UAE or, or elsewhere in the Gulf that um, uh, may already be offering them 
some types of exemptions or a great deal, right? Um, so that has to be protected whilst at the same time, um, if the opportunities are Saudi, that opportunity must be weighed up against the protections they already have. Uh, when you look at corporate strategy and you look at transformation, and this is ultimately a transformation, right? It's a regional transformation. Um, you have to consider your current deal versus the next deal. So the current HQ setup versus the next HQ setup. Is there going to be a tangible benefit to it? Now, in order to do that, you ultimately have to look at the pipeline of deals. You have to, you have to think, is there enough work for us in Saudi with our current setup, our current face, or are we going to be forced to um, uh, comply to a higher degree with things such as Saudiization initiatives? Are we going to have to change the shape and character of our organization in order to set up the HQ here? So that's the first decision that you would start with a, a strategic corporate decision, right? Um, but then there's other things to consider, such as can this be a HQ in namesake only? What does, what does being a HQ mean? And, and, and what's the exact detail behind this program and behind these initiatives? Um, what's the exact capitalization required? Are we allowed to have a, a subsidiary business with a higher level of capitalization, i.e. can the majority of, of our business on paper be outside of the kingdom, but on paper it's HQ uh, uh, within the kingdom? So there's, there's lots of things that need to be considered within it, and it remains to be seen. We've spoken to several clients about this, um, and some of them are, are on some of the lists of early movers that, that we've discussed. And there's not a high level of practical planning behind it at the moment until things become more clear. Um, so, yeah, that's the first point. You've got to weigh up the decision. Is, is this worth it from a commercial perspective, of course? Um, secondly, understanding to what degree of being HQ does this setup uh, require. Um, and then the third thing is, is there going to be any backlash or reciprocal agreements within the GCC where a HQ in Saudi may actually prevent us from doing further business elsewhere? Because that then filters down into both, both other um, aspects of the decision. So um, quite a lot of cloudiness around that topic, I would say, at the moment. And our reaction from the market speaking to these companies that will be affected is the, the idea that, okay, well, we already have strategic partnerships in place. Can we, can we look at the deals we have in place in the market, look at maybe a different uh, level of capitalization, look at a different setup on paper, and then claim that as a, as a HQ? Can we look to make acquisitions um, or, or sign other types of uh, strategic partnerships, JVs, with companies in the market and transition that to become a HQ? So I don't think there'll be many companies taking the start from scratch approach, you know, in, in terms of just leasing new office space and, and moving HQ over. I can't see that happening um, because there's going to be needs uh, for uh, Saudiization compliance. There's going to be needs for um, uh, uh, keeping on board current strategic partners. So there's going to be some hybrid approach. I don't think there'll be any two major companies doing it exactly the same, honestly. I think uh, take that as an opinion rather than, than fact, but I, I, I can definitely see there being a um, hundred different solutions to the same question. Uh, back to the back to the it's not a dichotomy, but back to the the, the you know the issue of international uh, firms and domestic firms. 
Uh, when we spoke uh, a bit ago, you talked about the types of tenders. And, and again, returning to this report, it's useful because they talk, the report talks about eight contracting procedures under the 2019 government tender and, and procurement law. Um, but you, you suggested that, that uh, there's a pattern here in terms of types of tenders and who gets them. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, under the, the GTPL, they very clearly set out the frameworks for eight different types of, of, of tender processes. Um, and depending on what sector you're operational in, or sectors you're operational in, and depending on the type of work you're, you're bidding on, there'll be a different applicability for each tender type. So within the construction space, which is uh, the focus of, of a lot of the work we're doing at the moment, um, we'll see general tenders as the main route to tendering. Um, so these have to be publicly announced, they have to be published online, they have to be responded to, and now of course there's a preferred bidder process as well, so uh, those organizations that already have relationships with the contract tour agency, uh, sorry, the, um, uh, the, the, procuring, um, the procuring company versus the contracting agency, uh, there's likely to already be a preferred list in there, there's likely to already be a relationship. But, Generally speaking, the framework is, is pretty much laid out. Um, now, we can't dismiss the fact of, of market influence. We can't dismiss uh, other types of influencing factors within decision-making. Um, cost is one huge component. Uh, relationships is another component. Uh, relationships you can't do much about. That takes time. Cost, of course, you can do something about. Uh, well, it depends what your cost base is, but that's, that's typically flexible for contractors. Um, but there is a third component as well, uh, and that is often track record. And we see track record being one of the key demands of, um, of, of those procuring companies. They want to see that you have done work like this before. Furthermore, they want to see that you've done work like this before in Saudi. And when you get down to municipal level, it might say, we want to see work you've done like this before within our region. So um, it, it does very much change and vary sector to sector. Um, and you can't hide the fact that, of course, there's always going to be preferred bidders within it. Uh, tenders can often be designed to reflect uh, the, the, the specific criteria and offers from very specific partners as well. That's a global reality. That's not a Saudi problem. Um, and we find a lot of clients in our space typically expect uh, the current state of the market. That's, that's a market expectation globally. So Saudi's come a long way from previously where there may have been um, uh, uh, reports of under-table deals and brown envelopes and, and the only way to win work is the relationship element. That's changed a lot. That's changed a lot. And when you look at the market value of construction, um, a lot of the work is going to major international companies. When you look at infrastructure projects, a lot of the work is going to China. When you look at high-value engineering projects, a lot of the work is going to Europeans, Americans. So you see um, a good portion of the value of the space uh, being quite equally attributed to those organizations that can best deliver. Now, the second type of tender that we see uh, often is, is a framework agreement. So these are open-ended frameworks that allow the bidder to define the services that they will provide or the goods that they will provide to meet a specific question from um, the, the procuring company. 
Um, so we see this a lot for um, maintenance contracts, repair contracts. Uh, we, we see it, of course, in the infrastructure space quite a lot. Um, and uh, again, how this looks in commercial reality is very different depending on at which level it's being procured. If you're looking at um, uh, airport level, high level of technical niche required, um, is going to go to those firms that can demonstrate a high level of technical expertise. If you go down to road maintenance contracts at municipal level, you're going to go to the local companies that are cost competitive, they've probably won the same contract a few times before. Um, these framework contracts often are two-year term, three-year term, five-year term, depending on which sector and, and what the level of uh, um, service requirement is. So what the influencing factors are and what the decision-making factors are really do change depending on who's purchasing which services. Um, so we like to advise our clients based on whatever their area of expertise is, um, who they're going to be dealing with and how you have to deal with them. It very much changes depending on which sector you're in your sense, uh, Jack, as across the board, the process has become more transparent, more transparent, more above board. Absolutely, there is no two ways about it. Since 2019, things things have improved. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. You may not be able to answer simply because it's a wonderful vocabulary. But if it, within the construction sector, and I'll, and I'll and I'll and I'll list out. <clears throat> segments of it. So commercial construction, industrial construction, infrastructure construction, energy and utilities constructions, institutional construction, and residential construction. Again, you know, your your segmentation of the market may be different. So that's why it might be a vocabulary. But which of these is especially attractive at the moment in terms of uh, a foreign investor or or a domestic uh, contracting firm? Where's the high growth where are the high growth areas? Yeah, that's, that's definitely an interesting question. I would say across the board, we're seeing growth. There's, there's nothing really slowing down. Um, when it comes to infrastructure, um, there has been recent history, a lot of high value work available there. Um, one thing to consider within infrastructure contracts is that the site, the procurement cycle is, is uh, so long. The construction cycle is so long. The project may take up to 10 years to implement, right? So um, how many new airports can one country possibly build? Well, there's been quite a lot of airport work over the past five years in Saudi. Um, airport announcements, airport refurbishments, new terminal builds. Um, but how much more can there be in the future? So I'd say infrastructure is something that has been hot, uh, but there's a limit to how much infrastructure is required. Um, when it comes to things like residential, there's a lot of residential work out there. Um, uh, there's a lot of residential work to support new city developments and, and, and other mega projects elsewhere. So I'd say that um, definitely there is, uh, there, there, there is uh, a, huge, a huge opportunity across all sectors. In terms of commercial development, um, I would say that that's also a slower sector. If you're talking about, if you're talking about high value projects, so downtown projects, skyscraper builds, et cetera, they're more few and far between as well. Um, but in terms of value opportunities, it's always going to be uh, within those um, uh, infrastructure spaces. Um, and I think the other thing is, uh, it's a very subjective question. Um, if, 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 your, if your particular area is, is, uh, is lower value, it's typically also lower cost base as well. 
if your if your if your niche area is building railroads, uh, that's very expensive. So your cost base is going to be high, and then it's it's a margins game. So um, it depends who you are, and as a strategy consultant, we'd say everybody has an opportunity. We just got to figure out what it is. <laughs> there you go. So, so you, know, this, you never, never, never remove yourself from potential business. Well done. Oh, <laughs> the um, how has you know in the past there have been issues, uh, payment issues, you know, large contracts uh, with government entities where payment is delayed or disputed. Uh, what's what's the latest? situation and, and sense environment for that yeah so in terms of payments issues this this historically has been an area of concern um, there there have been stories of of contractors getting burned when it comes to payments um, and uh, very punitive contract wording as well uh, related to specific deliveries and deadlines and therefore we can withhold payment if this happens and that happens this is still considered uh, an, an area that needs to be looked at carefully. So um, we're not lawyers, but we certainly encourage our clients to be very careful as to um, the terms of particular uh, tenders, to be very careful in terms of the wordings of their contracts, because this is uh, an area that we would not want to wrongly characterize and say is an issue in Saudi. I wouldn't do that, but I'd certainly say that it's worth paying very close attention to contract wordings and proceedings within uh, making sure you're delivering what is perceived as value and is perceived within the terms of your contract. Jack, this has been so informative. Is there something we didn't get to that you think you know we and our listeners should should be uh, you know educated on? I think I think we covered quite a lot. Um, yeah. I think <laughs> I think I think the main the main themes have certainly been covered. I would say that. Um, there is a lot of excitement around the Saudi market, rightly so. I would say the Saudi uh, entities and organizations and the regulators and the authorities are responding well to both the needs of Saudi and also to the desires and concerns of foreign investors. This is a Saudi success story. It cannot be a foreign investor success story, but there is the correct acknowledgement that we need foreign support to fill some of the technical gaps. And actually, we have a lot of opportunity here for foreign companies. If you want to capture them, you come and play our rules. But our rules are now international best practice. And I think that is such a great statement from the Saudis to the global community. Well, and that actually, it, it prompts another question that uh, this may never end, Jack. Apologies. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, YCP Solidians is very active in Asia. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things, you know, the Saudi Arabia, as it, as it sees itself as a global market and it wants to, as you know, the whole purpose of best practices, the whole purpose of so much of what they're doing is to make it competitive in a global market. When a, when a large multinational looks at options, and so you've got Asia, Europe, elsewhere, Africa, wherever, and, and, and you know, how is Saudi stacking up in that regard? Um. Sorry, in, in terms of opportunity, in terms of in terms of in terms of uh, as you weigh the opportunity, you know, in, in return on investment, uh, availability of supplies, uh, you know, uh, you know, employees, you know, the 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 skills required to accomplish the job, uh, and you know, the political environment, all these things that come into when a large multinational makes a choice between Saudi Arabia or Singapore. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a super interesting question. Um, I would say that no two markets are the same. Uh, this is why we do what we do. We provide that boots on the ground uh, knowledge, that experience to say that an opportunity here cannot be copy pasted somewhere else. The opportunity is based on intrinsic market reality. Now, when you put Saudi up against regional opportunities, you can compare them to other Middle Eastern markets, the, the difference is astronomical. And that's to do with the size of opportunity. The potential market size, the potential reward in almost anything is always going to be greater in Saudi. Africa is a different story in terms of growth and development curve. South Asia, different story in terms of growth and development curve. Um, Southeast Asia, it's a different story in terms of growth and development curve. <laughs> but there is certainly opportunity there. Um, the opportunity there has a very different shape. The opportunity there has a very different feel to it. Um, and then if you keep going around, you're into China, Korea, Japan, three markets that are not comparable to anywhere else on the planet. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the world, you've got Europe and the US, very well established markets. There's always going to be opportunity for, for entrepreneurs, but yeah, you can't access them. So if you're talking about growth markets, Saudi is very much in a unique position. It has capital inside the kingdom. Now, that is a big difference from some of the Southeast Asian markets on a similar growth curve. That means you can find local partners with money that have ambition. You don't need to go and do the journey. You're, part, you're, you're joining on someone else's journey. And I think that's the point I made before that actually, this is a Saudi story. Do you want to be part of it? Because we're doing it anyway. And that is the unique element that we see within Saudi. Um, it's a very different structure in terms of its ruling authorities. Um, there are very different nuances. Um, uh, uh, well, of course, there's different nuances. Nuances are different, but there are nuances to Saudi that are not seen elsewhere. Um, and I think that it's wise for investors to be aware of them, but none of them are barring conditions. None of them are barring conditions. It's about understanding how you can best do business on your commercial terms within a commercial framework set by somebody else. And Saudi is allowing that environment to flourish. And then, yeah, it's a very exciting time for Saudi. Um, but very rarely will we compare Saudi to another market um, because it, it is just so unique in terms of its structure. It's different in Southeast Asia. We get a lot of investors coming to us saying, should we sell up in Vietnam or Malaysia? Well, let me tell you the story of Vietnam. Let me tell you the story of Malaysia. There's no, there's no comparison when it comes to Saudi. Mm. Strategic positioning, um, uh, indigenous wealth, capital reserves uh, within the kingdom itself. Um, we talked about manpower just before. Um, the level of skilled labor increasing, the level of uh, skilled Saudi middle management and management increasing. Um, a very interesting story and anecdotal at best, but uh, I grew up in Saudi Arabia in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. My father was in, in the tobacco business out there. Um, and uh, the structure of, of business in those days, you work for a family, who had as its chair the family head. My father would run whichever element of the business he was in charge of, and there'd be a lot of foreign staff underneath him, uh, typically from uh, the Philippines or South, South Asia. Um, the story is different now. Uh, Saudiization initiatives have kicked in. Um, the level of, 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 of skill within Saudi management has changed. Um, so we can look at organizations that are competently run, very well run, top to bottom, with uh, Saudi management, 
support from overseas labor where necessary. It's a very, very different picture from, from, from 30 years ago. So um, I think, you know, senior executives and uh, investors who may have a tarnished image of Saudi from the 90s, for example, need to rethink, they need to understand the way Saudi is now is rapidly changing for the better. Updating perspectives is a theme on this podcast. Jack Fowler from the global management consulting firm YCP Solidians joins us from London. Jack, this was awesome. Great discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much for having me. My goodness, Jack. Outstanding. Uh, I just learned so much. This was this was an hour well spent. Thank you so much. Jack, where can everybody find the paper we discussed on the construction market in Saudi? Yeah. Um, anybody interested can go to our website, www.ycpsolidians.com, and you'll see our library of white papers on there. We publish on varying topics, varying countries, um, and get in touch with us if you want something unique and custom for you. That was our conversation with Jack Fowler from the global management consulting firm YCP Solidians. Richard, great stuff. Love that we were able to do a sort of a sector doing business uh, segment and episode. And I think we'll be doing more sector oriented episodes. But I, you know, this format is just so much fun. We 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 determine something interesting and and invite a, a guest to uh, enlighten us, and it's just really great. It's also really rewarding to see the viewership and listenership grow each week because I feel like I'm getting a personal bespoke lecture on various subjects from experts. So I'm being enriched by this by by a long shot. So it's nice that others are enjoying it as well. Agreed. Numbers are going up. Numbers keep going up. Yep. Love seeing it. Richard, what do you think? Let's get to Yella. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> Number one, Saudi Arabia's parallel market, Nomu, outshines Tazi, which is their main market, with a 209% market cap growth. Saudi Arabia's, Saudi Arabia's parallel markets NOMU capped index took investors by surprise as its value grew at a faster rate than the main market's Tazi during the first quarter of 2022, according to a report in Arab News. NOMU's market capitalization rose 209% on the year to $10.3 billion from $3.3 billion in the same period one year ago. The main market, Tazi, which captures the performance of 215 firms listed on the Saudi exchange, increased at a slow rate of 24% to $319 billion. 24% isn't bad in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Nomu is really interesting, Richard. It's, a, as you mentioned, the parallel market launched in 2017, so it's somewhat newer, restricted to qualified investors. Um, and it has attracted companies seeking to sell shares to the public with lighter listing requir- requirements or regulations. So it's a little bit easier to get listed there if you don't want to go through all the hoops to get onto the title wool, which, as you mentioned, is also doing very well. But um, it's it shows a more of a mature market. And we had a great conversation with Amjad Ahmed from uh, who's an entrepreneur and he's with Empower ME at the Atlantic Council talking a little bit about entrepreneurship. We talked about IPOs. Just great discussion on our YouTube channel, wherever you get your podcast. But this is a really interesting space. And um, yeah, that's it's very kind of a shocking number from the Nomu, 209% market cap growth. That's huge. Well, and it really, um, really affirms the decision to do it. I mean, in 2017, and, and the, the difference, the, the, so for example, in terms of requirements to list. 
So on the NOMU parallel market, you have must have been carrying on a main activity for at least one financial year. On the main market, it's three financial years. Uh, you have to have on a NOMU audited uh, preceding financial year only on the main market, three financial years. Aggregate value of shares on the NOMU, uh, uh, 10 million reals on the main, 100 million reals. So it's, you know, it's it's a mechanism that they put in place and it's just it's extraordinary. I mean, in a year to to bounce from 3.3 billion in value to 10.3 billion. And what I also thought was interesting is that even though they're lighter requirements to list, it's not like anybody can get on. And so in this first quarter, I, I, I gather that 62 companies applied for, for you know, to be on the parallel market, no move. Only six were approved. So it is, it is a different access. It is easier access, but it's not like anybody can show up. You still have to have your, your ducks in a row to a certain extent. Yeah, food delivery platform Jahez International, we've talked about on the show, uh, was the first ever first ever local tech startup on Nomu, and it generated four hundred twenty eight million dollars in proceeds. That's crazy. Yeah, we that's talked about that. Wow. Yeah. In my book, that's the first Saudi unicorn because it was valued over a billion, and it you know it was it was a startup. You mm-hmm. know, so um, uh, and private sector, completely private sector. So yeah, I mean. What again? You know, right now Saudi Arabia is in sort of every facet of its game is going from success to success. Here's another one. Number two, Saudi women graduates outnumber men in job training programs. Good for them. Saudi uh, female Saudi graduates have significantly outnumbered Saudi men in the national on-the-job training program launched by the Human Resources Development Fund called Hadaf, according to a report in the National. Hadaf said 74% of 61,000 participants who have benefited, benefited from Tamhir, a three to six month on the job training scheme for Saudi graduates since its launch in 2017, were female. Most of the participants were from Mecca, Riyadh, and the Eastern province. The number of women with jobs in Saudi Arabia has nearly doubled in the last five years and now stands at more than 35% of the workforce. Uh, does it surprise anybody that women outperform men in any capacity in terms of training, education, scholarship achievement? Nope. <laughs> not, a, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> should, should, should we move on? I will say, you know, this Tom here program, uh, which is three to six month on the job training scheme for Saudi graduates. And it's, it's, it's tied through Nitakat in, in certain ways. So it's targeting specific needs in the economy. And, and I think that's a tremendous um, plus for the Saudi economy that they're vocational, if we can call it vocational, but or, or, or short-term training programs are getting uh, highly subscribed because you, not everybody needs a four-year degree. Not anybody should be going to a, a university setting. There's plenty of other ways to be, uh, develop skills and gain skills and contribute you know, positively to an economy. And, and these, these types of... Uh, development and training programs are a good example. Yep. And this is, uh, this is one of the fruits from the vision 2030 tree, which really prioritizes getting the highly qualified, highly educated Saudi women into the workforce. And that is starting to happen. Yeah. Number three, Saudi Arabian edition of the office in the works, (laughs) according to a report in the Hollywood reporter, BBC studios, which owns the format rights and MBC studios, uh, the production arm of Saudi-owned Middle East satellite giant MBC have unveiled Al Maktab, the first Arabic-language version of the long-running and award-winning comedy series. The 20-part series will broadcast on NBC's TV channels and via its streaming platform, Shahid VIP, 
later this year. Yep. Set to begin filming later this month. Um, follows the company at question here is a courier service in Saudi Arabia. You could not have chosen a more hilarious premise, in my opinion. I frankly, and I'm not, this is not just hot air. I'm actually tremendously excited to see this, assuming that they will have, of course, English subtitles, and I bet they do. But um, I mean, really interesting. Also, an original content play, and we're seeing a lot more original content coming out of Saudi Arabia. You know, at first it was just getting foreign content in, opening movie theaters. And now, um, I mean, we talked about it last week, movie cinemas is expanding. Um, we have uh, more original content that is now going to be available outside of Saudi Arabia. So, and I just genuinely think this is going to be really funny, especially if it's done really well. So, well, they, they, they've got, so that got office has been adopted, ad, uh, adapted into Canadian, Chilean, French, Indian, and Polish edition. And this NBC <laughs> deal marks the 12th international sale of the format. And I would only add <clears throat> for those of us, and there's scads, millions of office fans is it's remarkable that in the United States, you could not do the office today. Mm-hmm. It, it would true. be completely politically incorrect. That's true. And, and it's remarkable, I don't suppose, that the, you know, the Al-Maktab, you know, the Saudi version, will be politically incorrect. But it's, it's just kind of interesting that they're doing an office version in Saudi Arabia, and you simply couldn't do a new office version in the U.S. because people would all be up in arms and upset. Which kind of makes it, you know, it adds to its uh, enduring value as content for me. Um, it is just so funny. The British version, I have not seen all of, but is also tremendously hilarious. So this should be very good. It'll also be interesting. This will probably touch on some interesting social dynamics in Saudi Arabia that will give us a little bit of a window into, you know, uh, office politics these days in Saudi well, it's, you know, it's, it's whoever had that, Ricky Gervais, I guess, ever, you know, that insight that there are Michael Scotts in every environment, every work environment all over the world. You know, it's a quite, it's a quite a, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. It brings us all together. <laughs> we all have the similar issues and concerns because because there's a Michael Scott at the office. <laughs> At El Maktab. Can't wait to see. Can't wait to see it. It's going to be great. In fact, Richard, let's do a segment on it um, when yes. it first comes out. We'll, yes, we'll watch absolutely. it. Maybe do a little watch party, and then we'll take some notes. <laughs> yes, that'd be that'd be great. Um, Yellow number four. Starbucks Saudi Arabia opens its first all Saudi female operated store. Al Shaya Starbucks KSA has launched its first all Saudi female operated drive through store in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia as part of its ongoing commitment to create more work opportunities for Saudi women in line with the kingdom's 2030 vision. This is according to a report in Trade Arabia. The all female drive through only store located on the coast road um, on the coast road. I guess that's the proper name proper noun for where it is is a significant step towards increasing its women women in workforce by 230 percent excuse me by the end of 2022 with plans to launch many more drive-through stores over the coming years in saudi arabia said starbucks ksa just wanted to add to this richard um i love the drive-through starbucks i love not getting out of my car to get coffee delivered into the car um you just don't see them as much in the united states unfortunately but this is pretty cool it is. It's uh, and this is a theme now, which again speaks to speaks to the how things have flipped in Saudi Arabia. I mean, recently, just in May, budget carrier Flya deal sort of made a big deal of the first Saudi flight 
all female crew, you know, and, you know, they flew from, from Riyadh to Jeddah and the fly deal is a budget subsidiary of Saudia. So, you know, it says something about the society of these are now positive PR events and they're looking for opportunities to do this. So um, good on Starbucks, good on fly deal. And we'll probably see more of them. And, you know, we'll see enough of them until it's, it's no longer notable. And then you're making real progress. The joke has to be made that there will be a long drive through line of mostly men looking to buy coffee from this particular store. So that's really cool. It's awesome to see. And um, yeah, more Starbucks drive throughs please. Starbucks Global HQ. We would appreciate it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, number five, Saudi Arabia's King Abdullah Port tops 2021 CPPI index. Two Saudi ports rise up in rank, according to a report in Al Arabiya. Saudi Arabia's King Abdullah port topped the 2021 edition of the Global Container Port Performance Index, CPPI, developed by the World Bank and S&P Global Market Intelligence. Saudi Arabia's Jeddah Islamic port also featured strongly in eighth place overall, and King Abdulaziz port placed at 14th. Quote, CPPI is a comparable index of global container port performance intended to serve as a reference point for key stakeholders in the global economy. The ranking is based on time vessels needed to spend in port to complete workloads over the course of 2021, a year that saw unprecedented port congestion and disruption to global supply chains, unquote, according to the World Bank. Massive. King Abdullah ports rank increase, as you noted, from the second to the first in the world. Jeddah went from 55th to 8th and King Abdulaziz port jumped to 14th, uh, jumping 88 points or 88 ranks from last year's report. Richard, when I saw this and we, we talked about this a little bit earlier this week, all I could think about was the forthcoming land bridge that they're building because these ports are starting to really start, I mean, really increase in volume. And then when you get this land bridge built connecting a lot of Saudi Arabia to these ports, major game changer. Well, land bridge is is a is a big thing, but and it, it, it will be a game changer. It'll be it will you know reduce time and and uh, expense considerably when that's in place. Um, I think it's I just think it's interesting. We did some we mentioned this in the in last week's episode about ports, and I think it's notable that out of close to four hundred ports, you know, King Abdullah Port is one, and 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 uh, Jeddah Port is eight. Uh, I also think it's fascinating to me that, you know, coming in at 369 and 370, which is the bottom, are Long Beach, U.S. and Long, Los Angeles, U.S. <clears throat> which we personally, we personally toured those ports, Richard. I don't know if you remember back I in do 2012. Remember. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember. Uh, there wasn't a delay there. But I guess that's a function, and I looked into this, I guess that's a, a function of, of obviously supply chain crisis. You know, the, everybody ordered on and during the pandemic, but also older ports uh, in Asia and, and the Middle East, you're, you know, the significantly newer ports that can work year round, I mean, day, uh, 24 hours, and, and just simply more efficient. Interesting story. Number six, and Richard, we've been quite quick today with our yellows, which is good. Um, number six, Greece and Saudi Arabia are eyeing a fiber optic data cable link to link with Europe and Asia. Greece and Saudi Arabia agreed on Tuesday on the main terms to set up a joint venture to lay a fiber optic data cable that will link Europe and Asia 
Greek sources said on Tuesday, according to a report in U.S. News, the, quote, East to Med Data Corridor, unquote, an undersea and land data cable will be developed by MENA Hub, owned by Saudi Arabia's STC and Greek telecoms and satellite applications company TTSA. Cool. Interesting on a number of levels. Number, actually, the uh, Minister of Investment, Khalid Fala, and a large, I think, you know, impressive group of Saudi business people are, have just visited Greece. And they're really upping their relationship with it, which is curious because uh, they're doing the same with Cyprus. So Greece and Cyprus, who are sort of uh, antagonistic with Turkey, uh, so Saudi Arabia is is intelligently moving on all on all phases and all fronts. But you know, uh, recultivating closer ties with Turkey while also doing the same with Greece and Cyprus. I thought this was really interesting, not only because they announced it, but because. This apparently comes, in, and I miss this, in February, the uh, STC, Saudi STC, Saudi Telecom Company, announced the launch of its initiative to establish a digital, major digital hub, the MENA hub, for the Middle East and North Africa. And they're investing a billion dollars, and essentially they're laying cable and making sure cable is intact uh, all the way from Singapore to well into Europe. Um, and for the purpose of being sort of taking advantage of its geostrategic location, purpose of not only to upping its its data ability, but also to be right at the center of this MENA hub. And it's, uh, I guess it came on the sideline of the leap in their national conference. You may remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I just worked back and I'm just saying, you know, they had the announcement about the agreement with Greece but you work back and you see that it's part of a larger MENA hub initiative and, and, and they're trying to establish data centers that, are, that uh, you know, across all KSA major cities and sort of at the, at the, at the heart of this long cable connection from, from Asia to Europe. Yeah, it's really cool. And actually, I believe we saw this this week, but Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman may visit both Greece and Cyprus as part of an upcoming um, foreign trip and uh, is also rumored to visit Turkey as well. I don't know if any of those are on the same trip, um, but that's interesting. You are seeing an uptick of this. I remember last year as well, Greece sold Saudi Arabia a few Patriot battery systems uh, for self-defense. So them, yeah. Yeah, so or them, yeah. Um, so uh, interesting stuff. And this is this is a, you know, this is one of those stories. This is what we love about Yellow. We get to highlight something and kind of bring it to the top and um, it's something that, you know, might be interesting to our listeners. So very cool. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Richard, great episode to our listeners. Thank you for being here. Follow us um, if you haven't already on YouTube or anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I think we're on TuneIn now, Richard. We're on over 20 platforms, keeping the growth going, which uh, we love seeing. So there is, um, there's no place to hide. There's no, you're we're coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian. Well done.